Well, um, if you're just joining us today, uh, we're studying the book of Exodus, and uh, we come today to kind of the action sequence in Exodus, the God using Moses to uh, execute the 10 plagues on the people of Egypt, um, which reminded me of uh, the Marvel movies. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the origin of the Marvel movies, uh, way back in 2005, Marvel realized that it had a problem. And the problem was this, um, people were kind of moving away from buying comic books and into consuming um, superhero stories largely through cinema, but Marvel hadn't made enough money on the Spider-Man and the X-Men franchises that they had licensed to uh, Sony and Fox, respectively. So they'd licensed this, these superhero stories to them, but it just didn't, they didn't make a, enough money for it to really be worth it for them long-term. And so in 2008, Marvel uh, took a big risk, and they decided to launch out and start their own studio. And uh, so they started Marvel Studios, which was the first new independent studio that had been started since Pixar. And their goal was to maintain creative control over the stories, but also to keep the distribution rights. Now, in doing so, they came up with this new idea that seemed completely wild at the time, like extravagantly risky. And that was what they called the Marvel Cinematic Universe, whereby they would introduce each member of the Avengers superhero team one at a time, giving them each their own individual origin story film. And then they would bring them together in a big crossover piece where they would assemble as a team and fight against an evil villain. Um, now, the reason they picked the Avengers is because they hadn't licensed that to anybody, anybody yet. So they, had, they still had all the rights to them. Um, but in doing so, they had to come up with a way to rapidly introduce new superheroes. They kind of had to develop a formula. And so here's the formula they came up with. Sorry, I'm, 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 my, my, I have a short in my mic there. I got to get that out. There we go. We'll fix that. Uh, so here's the, here's the formula they came up with. Formula was new superhero will give you his name or her name, and then... Um, they will show you their power. And then over the course of their story, they'll reveal kind of the intricacies of their personality, like why they are the way they are. But in order for this to really work, they needed to have a nemesis. And the nemesis needed to exist to draw out their full power and the full complexity of who they were as a person. Um, now, here's the reason I bring that up. It's not merely because the formula worked, because it did work, right? Mar Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Marvel Studios became the most successful, highest grossing media franchise of all time. It was wildly successful. But the reason I'm bringing that up now is because as we're journeying through the book of Exodus, I have found myself wondering this question. Why did God pick Moses to be his spokesman? 
I mean, it is so unusual because Moses was slow of speech and he had stage fright that was so bad that he argued against God and kind of actually like argued God down off of the idea that he would be the spokesman and had him kind of compromise and say, okay, Aaron will speak for you. You'll kind of whisper in his ear and then he'll talk for you to, Mo, to Pharaoh. And I was like, why would God pick a spokesman who doesn't want to speak? Because that doesn't happen anywhere else in scripture. All the other guys that are called to, to speak for God, Elijah, uh, you know, King David, um, you, know, you know, pick your prophet, Isaiah, none of them were hesitant uh, to speak. They were articulate. And that's when it occurred to me, oh, God wasn't picking a spokesman. God was choosing a biographer, because if you're with us, you may, you may remember Moses was born a Hebrew, but he was raised in the Egyptian palace. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and he was raised a royal, which means that in redemptive history up until this moment, Moses was the single most educated Israelite to ever exist. He had the highest education of any Israelite up until that moment, and in fact, that's what God used. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. And so essentially what God was doing was he was supernaturally revealing himself to Moses so that Moses could capture this story where God is going to do what? He's going to give Pharaoh his name. He is going to reveal to Pharaoh his power. And then he is going to show Pharaoh his character by allowing Pharaoh to become his nemesis. And Moses is going to capture all that and write it down for human history. So, the story begins with an introduction of sorts. Exodus 5, 1 and 2. Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. To understand the significance of this statement by Pharaoh, we need to remember how the book of Exodus began. It began with this statement in Exodus 1. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. If you were here when we began uh, the study of Exodus, you may recall that several centuries earlier, Israel and their God were held in high esteem by the Egyptians. And the reason they were held in high esteem by the Egyptians is the God of the Israelites had given a prisoner in Egypt, a guy named Joseph, who had grown up an Israelite, the supernatural ability to predict and the supernatural wisdom to manage a coming catastrophe, which was a famine that was going to go through all the Middle East and last for seven years. And the Pharaoh of that time, the king of Egypt at that time, that was 450 years before Moses, appreciated Joseph so much that he made him the governor over Egypt. 
But we are several centuries and several pharaohs later. And at this point, a new pharaoh, a king of Egypt arises who does not consider the Israelite people with favor. He perceives them to be a threat, a domestic threat that needs to be managed through oppression. And he considers their God too weak to do anything about it. And so Yahweh, the God of Israel, who introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush, introduces himself to the Egyptians. And he does it by sending a man slow of speech to confront the absolute monarch of the biggest global superpower of the time and tell him that he needed to be willing to allow his slave labor to walk off the job and leave the country. This would be like President Biden asking Brittany Griner to go back to Moscow and to appear before Putin and tell him he needed to retreat out of Ukraine. That would be really dumb, right? Like chances Brittany would survive that would be about zero. And that's the way Moses and Aaron should feel. But they don't, right? Something transformative has happened in their lives. They have become really, really bold. And as a result, what God uses them to do is to speak the truth in love to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's not hearing that. He, he greets their, this introduction with contempt. And because the only thing a dictator like Pharaoh will listen to is the language of power, God's name alone isn't enough to get the job done. So God starts to use his strength. Exodus 7, verses 14 through 18 is a passage we're going to look at today. And it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. When you see him walking out to the water, stand ready to meet him by the bank of the Nile. Take your, in your hand the staff that turned into a snake. Tell him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But so far you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. Here is how you will know that I am the Lord. Watch, I'm about to strike the water in the Nile with the staff in my hand and it will turn to blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink and the Egyptians will be unable to drink water from it. Now, the interesting thing to me about this is um, that God started small. Um, God could have gone nuclear here. In fact, before he sent Moses back into Egypt, when Moses was still in Midian where he saw the burning bush, it seemed like that was going to be God's plan to go just kind of straight for the jugular. He said this in Exodus 4, 21 through 23. The Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do before Pharaoh all the wonders I have put within your power, but I will harden his heart so he won't let the people go. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refused. Look, I'm about to kill your firstborn son. So Moses could have started with plague 10, but he didn't. God doesn't start with plague 10. Rather than start with the death of the firstborn, God begins by cursing the Nile. 
and then slowly works his way through eight more plagues of increasing significance, slowly ratcheting up the pressure on both Pharaoh and the Egyptians until things reach ahead. But why be so methodical? And as we look at this passages, these plagues today, we're going to see there are three reasons. The first is to reveal the full extent of his power. The second is to reveal the full extent of our problem. And the third is to reveal the full extent of his patience. First, God uses these plagues to reveal the full extent of his power. The Egyptians were not atheists. They were polytheists. And like most people throughout human history, they intuited that their lives on earth were subject to forces beyond their control that sometimes seemed personal. And so what we call Mother Nature or Lady Luck or Father Time or Murphy's Law or the Invisible Hand of the Economy, they put names to. And they called them things like Hopi, the god of fertility, which they associated with the Nile, or Heket, another fertility god who had the head of a frog, or the bull god Apis, who they worshipped for cattle and for strength, or the goddess Sekhmet, who was the goddess of plagues, or Nut, the goddess of the sky, or Re, the sun god. And so... When God sent Moses to produce 10 plagues over the Nile, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, human bodies, hail, locusts, darkness, and children, what was God revealing? Well, he was revealing that he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He was essentially taking on one God of the Egyptian pantheon at a time, and he was flexing on them. And he was like, oh, you think that Hopi is the god of the Nile? Wrong. I'm the god of the Nile. Oh, you think Heket is the god of fertility and frogs? Wrong. I'm the god of frogs. Right? Oh, you think that you know the god of livestock? Wrong. I'm the god of livestock. You think you control the weather and the sky? You think you know who to pray to about that? Wrong. I control the weather and the sky. And so that's what God was doing all the while slowly circling the Egyptian king who from childhood had been raised to believe that he was a god, that he was a human divine being. You talk about a narcissistic personality. I mean, this was unbelievable. And he kept circling him because he refused to let God's people go. Which brings us to the next thing this series of plagues reveals, and that is the full extent of our problem. Many of us would like to believe that if God would simply show us a miracle, then we'd have no problem putting our faith in Him. But that simply isn't true, because God did that here over and over and over again. And what happened to Pharaoh's heart? It got harder and harder. Why? Because God let it. Notice the progression here. Before the first miracle, God said this to Moses in Exodus 4, the passage we looked at earlier. The Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put within your power, but I will harden his heart 
so that he will not let the people go. After the first miracle, Exodus 7, 13, however, Pharaoh's heart was hard and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. After the second plague, Exodus 8, 15, but when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. After the third plague, Exodus 8, 19, this is the finger of God, the magician said to the Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's heart was hard. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. After the fourth plague, Exodus 8, 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let them go. After the sixth plague, Exodus 9, 12, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them as the Lord had told Moses. So, so which is it? Is God hardening Pharaoh's heart or is Pharaoh hardening his own heart? Well, the answer is both. God hardened Pharaoh's heart by allowing Pharaoh to do what he wanted, which is to turn a blind eye to the mounting consequences of his sin. A friend of mine, Dr. Eric Warren, says to me, he says, listen, when your body starts talking to you, you will listen to it or it will get louder. Those are your choices. And in some sense, God is doing the same thing circumstantially to Pharaoh. God is allowing Pharaoh to harden his heart by giving him over to his own deceitful desires, his own desire to be God rather than trust God. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, he says this, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse, for though they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor showed gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in their desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is forever praised. I actually think that the Apostle Paul is thinking specifically about this story. In, in, in a real sense, he's almost describing it verbatim. What he's saying is, can't you see that Pharaoh can see God's eternal power and divine nature, but rather than submitting to God in faithful obedience and reordering Egyptian society according to God's divine ideals, he suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. His thinking became worthless, and though he claimed to be wise, he became a fool and exchanged the truth of God for lies and worshiped and served created things instead of the Creator. Consequently, his society fell into ruin. And what Paul is doing with this story is he's saying to us, you're Pharaoh. You're Pharaoh. Don't you see that God is showing himself to you every day when you wake up in the glorious creation that you find yourself in and in the fact that humans seem to be so rare 
We're the rarest thing in the universe. We're in, we're in a universe where we literally can see billions and billions and billions of stars. And as far as we can tell, we're the only people who can appreciate them. What? Why am I even here? And instead of that, what do we do? Well, we ignore God's revealed will and consequently our lives tend to fall apart. One of the things that theologians note about these plagues is their Genesis 1 in the reverse. When God created the world, Genesis 1-2, Moses tells us that the world began in this condition. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And from this place of chaos and water and darkness, God says, oh, let there be light. And then he begins to order and arrange creation until it reaches this pinnacle of this kind of paradise on earth where there's this tree of life in the center of this garden where he places humans and four rivers of life flow out of that space. But what we see in this passage is that as we ignore our creator, our life begins to fall apart in almost the reverse. And so what happens is at first, God curses the water of life for them, the Nile. And then the animals turn on them, frogs, gnats, flies. And then disease tears through their society. It starts with the livestock and ends with boils on humans. And then at the end, they wind up trapped in darkness and death. And what Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers are trying to explain to us is the same thing can happen to us. Now, not all the trials we go through in life are because of our sin, but many of them are. James, Jesus' younger brother, puts it this way in James 1, 13 to 15, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. You see, God has given us bodies and relationships and societies that are designed to work when we live according to his revealed will. And when we don't, just like Pharaoh, sometimes the consequences begin to mount up. Not because God is being merely punitive, but because God, like a good parent, is trying to bottom us out so that we'll come to our senses and come back into a place where we'll let him lead us into wisdom and life. Which brings us to the third thing that God's revealing through these plagues, and that is how patient he is. Notice how patient God's being with the Egyptians, even though they have ignored six previous plagues. Look at what he does in the seventh plague in Exodus 9, 13 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so they may worship me. For this time I am about to send all of my plagues against you, your officials and your people. Then you will know that there is no one like me on the whole earth. But now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague and you would have been obliterated from the earth. 
However, I've let you live for this purpose to show my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. You are still acting arrogantly against my people by not letting them go. Tomorrow, at this time, I will rain down the worst hail that has ever occurred in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore, give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have in the field into shelters. Every person and animal in the field and uh, that is in the field and not brought inside will die when the hail falls on them. So I did some research on what's the worst hail that has ever occurred in modern time? Like what is, what's the biggest size hail uh, that has fallen? And the answer is hail that was eight inches in diameter, right? So we're talking like small boulders is what happened here, right? Um, but notice that God says, I could have destroyed you all like that. I could have obliterated you from the face of the earth, but I didn't do it. Instead, he keeps graciously calling them to repentance. He keeps repeating himself. This is the seventh, seventh of 10 times he's going to send Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh to say the same thing, which is, let my people go, that they can worship me. And in fact, even in this case, he's like, the worst hail that has ever fallen on your nation is about to fall on them. So be sure to put your cattle in barns and be sure to stay indoors, right? He's being gracious even as he's afflicting the judgment on them. And then he executes the judgment, and each time he does, when Pharaoh even half-heartedly repents and says, okay, I'll let your people go for like 10 minutes or a day, or I'll let the men go, or just pray to God that he'll stop, God keeps relenting. Every time Pharaoh even hypocritically asks God for a break, God gives him the break. Why? Because that's his nature. Uh, later in Exodus 34, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, this is what happens. Exodus 34, 5 through 7, the Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Which kind of begs the question, how can God do this? Right? How can God be a God who is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love while also being committed to absolute truth? How can God be a God who forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin while not leaving the guilty unpunished? The answer to that question occurs in the ninth plague. Exodus 10, 21 through 29 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the heaven, toward heaven, and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another, and for three days they did not move from where they were. Yet all the Israelites had light where they lived. This darkness was not a natural darkness. This wasn't a total eclipse. This darkness lasted for three days, and it was particular. It fell on a particular people. And it could be felt. Felt? How? Felt for what it was. It was an appetizer of hell. 
when telling people about the final judgment in a parable, Jesus described hell this way in Matthew 25, 28 through 30. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has more will be given and he will have more than enough. But the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him and throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a darkness that can be felt. It's a judgment. It's one that falls on unfaithful, unbelieving, wicked people. How can God be just and let Vladimir Putin get away with this? Uh, He's not going to get away with it. There will be a day when every king will be held accountable by the king of kings and will receive from that just judge exactly what their sins deserve to the uttermost. But how can a God who is just not leave the guilty unpunished, right? And only have this darkness fall on the Egyptians while giving his own people light. Look again at verse 22. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another and for three days they did not move from where they were, yet all the Israelites had light where they lived. And the answer might surprise you. As Leslie Newbigin observes in the quote we put on the front of your bulletin, if the place where we look for ultimate truth is in a story, and if, as is the case, we're still in the middle of the story, then it follows that we walk by faith and not by sight. If ultimate truth is sought in an idea, a formula, or a set of timeless laws or principles, then we do not have to recognize the possibility that something totally unexpected may happen. You see, God picked a biographer. God picked a biographer. He didn't pick a scientist. He didn't pick a philosopher. Why? Because redemption is found in a person who you have to decide, are you going to listen to and love and trust and follow? And so the unexpected thing that happened in Pharaoh's time was that God picked a man slow of speech to show up with supernatural confidence in his presence and speak the truth in love to him in an effort to humble his hard heart. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords told him to let his people go so that they could worship him. In our day, the unexpected thing that happened is that same God revealed exactly how his people could receive light instead of darkness. He sent his son, who was the light of the world, into this world to do what? To endure the darkness our sins deserve on the cross so that paying for them himself, he could give us what his life deserves. Matthew puts it this way in Matthew 27, 45 through 53. This is what happened on the cross. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some saw, some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. 
Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city and appeared to many. On the cross, the light of the world endured the outer darkness, our refusal to obey our creator married, merited, excuse me, I'm thinking about Holly's birthday, merited. And uh, the reason he did was that our creator was willing to uncreate himself so that he could recreate us. That's what he was doing. And so, if you then want to do the thing that Pharaoh couldn't do, all you have to do at this point is humble yourself. Look at the cross and say, oh, Jesus is getting what my sins deserve. And then to ask that resurrected Jesus who chose not to save himself from the consequences of your sin to save you from the consequences of your sin, to come and be your Lord and to lead your life, to deliver you from darkness, and to rule and reign over you as your king. So who is the Lord? That's the question Pharaoh asked. Who is the Lord that I should worship him? And the passage that we've read today says, he's the God who chose Moses to be his biographer so that we could discover the full extent of his power, allowed Pharaoh to harden his heart so that we could see the full extent of our problem, and then sent his son so that we could know the full extent of his patience, calling us out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son who he loves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you entered our darkness and that you came to be the light of the world. We pray now by the power of your Spirit, you would illuminate the darkness in us and around us that we might be delivered from darkness and brought into the glorious light of your kingdom. And we pray that in your name. Amen.